Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt with Jacob. Every man with his household, they came. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And all the souls who came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls. And Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and swarmed, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. And there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass, when there falls out any war, that they also join themselves to our enemies and fight against us and go up out of the land. And they set over them captains, cat, captains of forced labor to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field, all their service in which they made them serve with rigor. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you for the story of Exodus and the manner in which it points us forward to Christ, our Savior and King. May you direct us now by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand and perceive this your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great stories are worth repeating. And there are some tried and true tropes that never get old and inevitably prove to be the best stories. Encounter tellings and retellings in movies or narrative themes in our favorite books and it can cause us to think, I've heard this story before. Whether it's the damsel in distress, the dragon that must be slain, the betraying uncle, or the character that appears to be one thing but is really another, these are themes that we encounter time and time again. Well, there are a number of allusions to Genesis and what we just heard in the opening verses of Exodus, even in the list of names that are immediately given. You may recall that Genesis can be structured by the ten Toledotes, the ten genealogies, the lists of names that are given at significant points in that book. So, Exodus immediately takes us back to Genesis. Still more, the Hebrew rendering for the second book of the Bible is not Exodus, but simply Names. Our English title tells us what happens, but the Hebrews use the first couple of words of the book. And having studied the latter chapters of Genesis in recent weeks, and particularly Jacob's blessings upon his sons, the list we encounter at the outset of Exodus is plenty familiar. Then in verse 8 and following, we encounter conflict in the narrative, and I suppose there is a sense in which we're leaving the story midstream by stopping in verse 14, but that's okay, and... You certainly picked up on some of the themes of the Exodus patterns from Genesis that we established last week. 
Well, as we officially cross over into Exodus today, I trust we'll come to a greater understanding of our calling and identity as the people of God and the disposition that faith can embrace even in the midst of hardship. So let's begin to make our way through the text and and not run by verse 1 too quickly. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each man and his household came. Now you'll notice immediately the usage of the names Israel and Jacob. And there's the corporate use of Israel, particularly as it's paired with sons. But then there's the individual, the personal name of Jacob mentioned, with each man and his household. You may may remember some of the interplay between the usage of Jacob and Israel in the latter chapters of Genesis, and that seems to be continuing here. Then we're given a list of 11 names of Jacob's sons. And what's what is the order that's given? Well, the four oldest born to, born to Leah are mentioned first, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Chronologically, we might expect Joseph to be listed next, but he gets his own press in verse 5. But verse 4 continues mentioning Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Now, why is Benjamin next since he's the youngest? Why isn't he mentioned last? Well, because the writer is listing the sons of Jacob's primary wives first, Leah and Rachel. They go before the maids of the wives who also bore sons to Jacob. So Benjamin appears in the seventh spot, and then you get two pairs of sons mentioned in verse 4. Dan and Naphtali, who are born to Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, and then Gad and Asher, who were born to Zilpah, Leah's maidservant. So the order is Leah, Rachel, Rachel's maidservant, Leah's maidservant. And we find this nearly identical order in Genesis 35, where earlier in the chapter we read, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. See, and that's, that's part of the theology that underlies what we're reading here in Exodus. Because the sons of Israel clearly are fruitful and multiplying, even as we read a couple of verses later. Verse 5, And were all souls going out of the loins of Jacob, seventy souls. And Joseph was in Egypt. Now, this is a direct connection back to Genesis 46, when all of Jacob's family comes to Egypt. It's even possible to render the loins of Jacob as the hip of Jacob, which may be an allusion to Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestles with God and receives his hip injury as a result. And when he also initially receives the name change from Jacob to Israel, God's wrestler. And that makes for some interesting imagery. Because even though Jacob had all of his children except Benjamin before Peniel, there's almost this sense that Jacob's experience, his constantly wrestling, didn't prevent his fruitfulness. But was actually the context in which he was able to flourish. That might seem counterintuitive at first hearing. But certainly the case can be made that adversity can lead to greater productivity, particularly as that adversity is embraced by faith. The number 70, referring to Jacob's direct descendants, needs to be noted. And where does the number 70 significantly appear in Genesis? Well, back in chapter 10 and the table of nations that we find there. Well, what's the implication? That the 70 of Jacob are a microcosm of the world. Even as their priestly duties are on behalf of the world, the macrocosm. What does microcosm mean? Well, literally, small world or little world, joining together the Greek words micros and cosmos. Macrocosm means 
large world. So the microcosm points forward to the macrocosm. What's more, later at the Feast of Tabernacles, 70 bulls were sacrificed on behalf of the nations, indicative of Israel performing their priestly intercessory duties for the world. In the Gospels, we encountered the Sanhedrin, which consisted of 70 men. And only in Luke's Gospel, the Gospel to the Gentiles, is mention made of Jesus sending out the 70 disciples, perhaps a subtle countering of the Sanhedrin. The Jews have their 70, Jesus has his. Perhaps we can even surmise that the 70 disciples constitute a new Israel in some form or fashion. But taking the macro, the, the micro to macro a step further, we see it in Jesus and what he did for the sake of the world and the small beginnings of the kingdom of heaven upon earth and its gradual expansion to the ends of the earth. Well, back to the text and we're told quite obviously that Joseph was already in Egypt. But notice what the writer, what Moses assumes, that you, the reader, already know Joseph, that you're already acquainted with his story. This indicates to us that Exodus is the sequel to Genesis. It's the continuation of that story. And just think of other books that you've read that function in this way or movies that you've seen that are the the sequel to the first. Inevitably, it assumes you have a measure of familiarity with what happened in the first installment. Yes, there might be flashbacks to remind you of what took place, but they're typically brief in order to serve the purpose of moving the story forward. Verse 6 echoes the final verse of Genesis 50 in telling us Joseph died. But then what else do we find out? And all his brothers and all that generation. So there's a clear theme of death and all the names just listed. All of the sons, uh, all of Jacob's sons died as did their wives and that generation that originally went to Egypt. In a word, the the theme of verse 6 is death. But then what do we read in verse 7? And the sons of Israel were caused to be fruitful and multiplied swarmed and they became great and they became vast in much muchness as was and was filled the land was filled the earth with them that's a fairly literal translation um, i like the much muchness uh, but there there are five different verbs that are used to indicate their growth and there are basically seven synonymous nouns that are used so there's a sevenfold increase that's conveyed And notice the theme from death to life. And not just a little bit of life, but abundant life. Once again, Moses is sending us back to Genesis. Fruitful and multiplied reminds us of the dominion mandate in Genesis 1. The word rendered multiplied can be more literally translated swarmed, which might initially send us back to Genesis 1, verses 20 and 21, when God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above and the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. But even more, we should go to Genesis 9 and verse 7. The only other time this verb is used in relation to humans when God blesses Noah and his sons after the flood telling them, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly, swarm on the earth and multiply in it. There's a pattern of old world to new world, of death to life, of one generation passing and another coming to the fore. 
And here in Exodus 1-7, the sons of Israel are filling the earth. They're picturing what Adam and Noah were commanded to do. They're also picturing the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their seed, their descendants, would multiply. And surely we can sense the underlying current of God's, of Yahweh's, of El Shaddai's covenant faithfulness and bring to pass what he has promised. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are long dead, and now Joseph and his 11 brothers are dead too. But the promises of God are not. Well, that brings us to the second section of our text this morning in verses 8 to 14, and wherein we might say that death is the subtle antagonist of verses 1 through 7. The king of Egypt is the clear antagonist here. Verse 8, And arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now appreciate the subtle literary irony. You as the reader know exactly who Joseph is, but this new king of Egypt does not. And we should understand that no doesn't simply mean awareness of or, or like some cursory knowledge because in all likelihood Joseph's reputation would have been known to this king. But this word for no can have a relational quality to it or is perhaps conveying that this king didn't acknowledge Joseph in any form or fashion for who he was or what he did. Also an interesting point uh, to consider is to ask why the sons of Israel were met with this trial of this king. Now, our text is silent, so perhaps we just leave it up to the secret things that belong to the Lord. And there are commentators who make fairly compelling arguments along these lines. However, it's also worth noting, uh, worth considering what we read at the end of Joshua, when Joshua states, Now, therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. What does this indicate? Well, that the sons of Israel were given over to idolatry while they lived in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. Could it be that the Lord raised up a harsh Egyptian king as judgment upon the people for their idolatry, for their failure to be faithful? God has his reasons for bringing judgment, and admittedly, we might not always know exactly why, and there could be multiple reasons. And we need to exercise some caution in always making one-to-one correlations, particularly when it comes to interpreting our circumstances or those, or those of others that we know. Nevertheless, uh, Calvin states in Book 4 of his Institutes, an impious king is a mark of the Lord's anger. And we know that any magistrate is in its place at the Lord's bidding. Solomon states in Proverbs 16:7, when a man's ways please the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, the case can be made that we shouldn't necessarily take this in an absolute sense because there are certainly cases where when we have enemies that we are to rejoice and it's a, it's a good thing. But it's still worth considering in relation to Israel's circumstances in Egypt. Were their ways not pleasing to the Lord? If they were given over to idols, then the answer is pretty clear. And there is a place for some self-examination to take place, hopefully leading to repentance. So what's the king of Egypt's assessment in verses 9 and 10? And he said to his people, to his nation, Behold, a nation of the sons of Israel are much and mighty, more than us. Come, let us deal wisely with him, lest he become great. And if we encounter war, and he joins himself with those hating us, and he fights against us and ascends from the land. Now there's an interesting thing going on here with referring to Israel as a people in the singular. There's a collective Uh, some collective language going on there. But first of all, we need to immediately recognize 
that the king is starting to act like a tyrant. How so? Well, he sees the prosperity of the sons of Israel, and it makes him paranoid, even though they haven't done anything to instigate concern. And while the English translations say shrewdly, it's literally wisely. Now, what might this remind us of? Well, perhaps of the serpent in Genesis 3, described as wiser than any other of the other beasts of the field. But the same word is used of Joseph in Genesis 41 of his wisdom to interpret dreams and in the plan to survive the famine. So maybe some subtle allusions are there are some subtle allusions here to, to Joseph, but with a hint of irony. But the king is worried about the sons of Israel combining forces with enemies on the one hand, but then also of the sons of Israel ascending from the land. Now, at face value, this ascending from the land could be seen as simply departing, and he doesn't want that to happen. However, if he's worried about Israel joining forces with enemies, in one sense it would seem to make sense for them to leave. Of course, he's a tyrant, and maybe he's not necessarily thinking clearly. But we heard the same kind of language of ascension most recently in Genesis 49 and 50, particularly in relation to the ascending that took place in order to bury Jacob in Canaan. Another way of possibly interpreting the king's concern is that the sons of Israel will become so numerous that the the land of Goshen won't be able to contain them, and so they'll, they'll spread out into other parts of Egypt, which is no good because of the cultural differences and so forth. In other words, the king feels as though Uh, The culture of Egypt is threatened by these outsiders living in Goshen. And the clean-cut, fastidious Egyptians don't want the shaggy-bearded shepherds permeating other parts of the country. So then what happens in verse 11? The first state of oppression is decided upon, and the sons of Israel are considered strangers and burned with extra taxes, extra work, and treated as second-class citizens. Now, a couple of interesting things to note here. Clearly, the king doesn't view the sons of Israel as Egyptians, as belonging to him. And so there's still some measure of distinction between the peoples. Second, there are once again echoes to the Joseph story. Remember the taxes he imposed on Egypt in preparation for the famine and the storehouses he had built to store the grain. In Joseph's case, it was righteous, but in this case, it's not. But notice how cleverly Moses is crafting the text. And we read that they, plural, the, so the Egyptians do this collectively. The king expresses his concern to his cabinet and then it becomes policy. They put taskmasters or princes of slave gangs for the purpose to afflict the sons of Israel with burdens upon them and they built storage cities for Pharaoh, Python, and Ramses. Whether or not we're to understand Israel is full-blown enslaved at this point can be debated. Uh, they're certainly being oppressed But when we think of city builders, who should first come to mind? Well, Cain in Genesis 4 in building the first city named for his son Enoch. And Nimrod in Genesis 10 in his part in building Babylon. See, initially, the unrighteous are the city builders. And they built cities on blood, we can even say. Not so unlike uh, the story of the founding and building of Rome when Romulus killed Remus. What's also interesting is that we have the first use of the title Pharaoh in verse 11. That title means great house. But is it really great? Or is it a counterfeit? Still more, are, the, are, are cities always bad? Are they always to be despised? Should, should all Christians prefer the agrarian life? Is it holier? You know, there are some people who believe that and contend as much. I even saw a video the other day of a a popular agrarian arguing as much, but it's it's not what the Bible teaches. 
Now, all of history is headed for a city, the heavenly city. Granted, it's described as a garden city, but it's still a city. As a bit of an aside, when the likes of Pharaoh, Cain, and Nimrod are building cities, it means that the cities are built by tyrants, by the wicked, who don't have the ethical breaks that are needed for the city to truly prosper. As is often the case, the righteous will have to come along later and reform and renew the cities, but we shouldn't view cities as inherently bad. Well, despite the oppression from the tyrant, what happens to the sons of Israel? Verse 12, And as they afflicted him, thus he became great, and thus he broke through. And they had sickening dread from before the face of the sons of Israel. So despite the oppression, the sons of Israel prosper. They're becoming great. They're increasing. They're bursting at the seams. And this fits with the Exodus Exodus pattern we noted last week and how oppression can lead to prosperity. Furthermore, Pharaoh's wisdom doesn't appear to be very wise, but that shouldn't surprise us. He doesn't want Israel to be fruitful and multiply. And so he's butting against God's design for his people, which means it's bound to fail. Well, that brings us to the final two verses of our text this morning and what constitutes the second stage of oppression, verses 13 and 14. So cause to serve the Egyptians, the sons of Israel, in harshness. And they made bitter the lives of them in hard service, in mortar and in brick, and in all service, in the field, and in all the service which they made them serve in harshness. When we consider the language that's used here and give careful count, we find a sevenfold oppression described. Five times mention is made of the service Israel had to render, and two times the text is clear to say that it's in harshness or cruelty or severity or even rigor. Verses 13 and 14 both end with this same term. The ESV captures it pretty well in saying, ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So clearly, the the oppression has, has ramped up another level. Now, all the work that Israel does, not just in the burdens of the taxes and building storage cities, but in every possible of area, every possible area of work, they're cruelly treated. The Egyptians made the lives of the sons of Israel bitter which not only involves the obvious physical component, but certainly includes a mental and spiritual component as well. So there's a a greater intensity and severity in this new oppression. And and maybe you can immerse yourself in the text and sense the rising anxiety that the sons of Israel would have inevitably experienced. Things are bad. They're about to get worse in the next wave of oppression that comes in the latter half of chapter 1, where we hope to pick up next week. Well, having touched on some principles throughout for our faith to consider, what are some further points that we can ponder or expand upon? Well, first of all, consider that adversity and productivity are not necessarily at odds with one another. Things don't always need to be calm in order for us to be fruitful. There's certainly something to be said for being productive in the routine, but the text is clear that as the oppression increased, so did the sons of Israel. Of course, the clear implication is that they increased numerically, that the oppression didn't slow them down in having children, but inherently connected to that would would be a greater fruitfulness in their lives and the Lord prospering them despite the difficulties. And so as difficulties, as challenges come, perhaps even oppression in various ways, let us faithfully meet the adversity, continuing to seek to rule and subdue the earth to the glory of God, sure of the promises of God that continue to us as his people. Second, and this overlaps with a major point established last week, that tyrants will be tyrants, 
And we are not surprised when they act in this fashion. In regards to verse 9, when the king of Egypt begins to express the need for preemptive action, John Calvin notes this. But this is a wicked kind of cunning, however it may be varnished over the specious name of foresight, unjustly to molest others for our own security. Now, that line of thinking sounds slightly familiar, doesn't it? Furthermore, whenever tyrants of those who are opposed to God and his people go against God's designs, they are doomed to fail. Now, the, the, the ploy of population control isn't new. And those promoting the false religion of climate change who use this rhetoric are diametrically opposed to God's order for the world. It is fundamentally satanic. It is to say that the Lord's declaration to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, is wrong. That God is wrong. That we are wiser than God. That we know better. And that the earth that God made for man cannot sustain man's fruitfulness. And it may be a shrewd argument because it certainly sounds like they care about the earth, about the environment, etc. But when man, the crown of God's creation, is viewed as the fundamental problem and threat to the earth, then that's a clear indicator that we're dealing with human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Victor Hamilton made this astute observation. Whenever God's unique blessing is on his own, someone somewhere is sure to squirm or get riled. In Genesis 12 through 50, it was often infertility that posed a threat to the realization of God's promises. In the opening chapters of Exodus, it is superfertility that poses a threat. See, being fruitful and multiplying is not the problem, but we shouldn't be surprised by tyrants who think otherwise. And finally, let us bear in mind that the microcosm to macrocosm reflects the church's calling in the world. That, that's still the pattern for God's people. What we do here as we serve in our priestly role on behalf of the world and then are sent out into it, our families being outposts of the kingdom wherever we live, that we are participating in the macro of bringing on earth as it is in heaven into reality. Here we are reminded of what Christ has done for us and for the world. Here we are presented with what is really real as directed by God and His Word. Here we intercede on behalf of the world and receive nourishment for our continuing participation in the work of the kingdom, in the work that Christ began and that is carried on by his people. Here we behold again and again the truly fruitful life to be embraced and pursued that no tyrant can thwart because Christ is conquered and he is the true Pharaoh building his great house in every nation the swarm of his people filling the earth. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you impress it upon us through the stories that you tell. And so may the story of Exodus begin to do its work upon our lives and in our hearts that we may be, that we may be faithful to you. Indeed, may we readily cast off idols and seek your face in repentance. And may you direct us and continue to uphold us by your word and your spirit. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.